actually something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, we might as well move the start time of the show till 10.15, huh? Because I can never seem to... Meet up with you guys on time. Just keeps people on the edge of the seats. It does, and on you know, and probably has a lot of people turning off their radios and computers because they assume we're not on. As we were last week, uh, we we were not here. We were supposed to be on in prime time, which we found out um, a few days before we were supposed to go on the air. Uh, so we tried to get the word out on our Twitter feed. That's the place to keep up to date with the news of Spooky South Coast. Uh, SpookySouthCoast dot com as well as uh, twitter.com slash spookysc. But we uh, we found out that uh, due to NFL football, we were going to be on in primetime from 6 to 8, which is always great to have a chance to talk to the primetime audience because we always pick up a few new listeners that way, and our regular listeners get to go to bed early. So it works out great for everybody. But um, there was a little blizzard, so <laughs> we, uh, we, we asked for permission not to have to come in. We're like, can we please get the night off? And uh, Pete said, sure, take the night off. It's it's going to be dangerous driving out there. And so, Because uh, we figured we were going to be here right when the blizzard hit. That's when it was expected to touch down here was between, you know, 6 and 8. So we didn't want to get snowed in here in the uh, WBSM Spooky Studio all weekend. So uh, we decided not to come in. And then I went to bed at 10 o'clock last Saturday night, and it still hadn't started snowing yet. So uh, it's, I guess that's just the way things work out sometimes. Uh, did you guys miss hearing my voice? Of course. I, yeah, I mean, uh, Matt Costa, he doesn't have a choice. He has to listen to me every day because we work the same day job. But I, uh, I I did host a show myself in my bathroom last Saturday night in front of the mirror, which I don't know why I did it in front of the mirror because it's not like I, I watch myself. But, you know, I did have to hear the sound of my own voice for two hours. So that's <laughs> what I did. I hope everybody had a great holiday, whatever holiday it is that you celebrated. Uh, especially for our Canadian listeners, happy Boxing Day! But uh, we uh, we we had a pretty good one at my house. We got we got the Wii, mm-hmm. so I know I put out the the request before when I got the PlayStation Three for any of our listeners who are PlayStation Three network users to look for me. I'm Spooky Tim, and uh, you can add me as your your PlayStation buddy. Yeah. But uh, and and my thanks to T Biz who actually did <laughs> that. But uh, it's a little harder to find friends on the Wii thing, so. Or just need somebody's friend code. Yeah. So if you're my fr- if you're if you're a listener and you want to be my friend on the Wii, just email me Tim at SpookySouthCoast dot com. Send me your friend code and and I'll try to be friends with you. Matt, will you be my Wii friend? Uh, I don't know. I'll think about it. All right. <laughs> By the way, I told the uh, told the big guy that you have a Wii accidentally today. So be prepared for <laughs> a lot of Wii time. Alright. <laughs> Alright. Well, we're not here to talk about video games. We're here to talk about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night, and we've got an action-packed show coming up for you tonight. We have Tom D'Agostino, our old friend and paranormal investigator and author. He's going to be joining us to talk about, talk about his new book, A Haunted, A Guide to Haunted New England, Tales from Mount Washington to the Newport Cliffs. We're going to talk about many areas that are right here in our own backyard, and one thing that I definitely want to talk to him about is a famous ship. 
that once sailed out of New Bedford and is now uh, reported to be haunted down in Connecticut. So we'll talk about that and a whole bunch more with Tom in just a few minutes. Later on, we're going to play an interesting 911 call from San Antonio, Texas, uh, that describes a Bigfoot sighting. And a lot of people are pretty convinced about this sighting, uh, despite the source of the information. But uh, it, it seems like it might be a real legitimate sighting. So we're going to talk about that, as well as the Week in Weird will be coming up and... I don't know how we're going to fit it all in because, you know, we started late because I was sick. So, yeah. We'll fit it. I think we'll get to it all. Yeah, I mean, worst case scenario is, uh, you know, you guys can just tell me to shut up when I ramble on too much. Like now, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we'll talk with Tom D'Agostino in just a minute here on Spooky South Coast. blew books off shelves from 20 feet away and scared the socks off some poor librarian. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. This looks extraordinarily bad. What was the name of Ray Parker Jr.'s uh, early 90s follow-up? <laughs> I Still Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts? No, yeah. wait. I, ch- I was wrong? I was wrong. I am afraid of those ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Keenan, what up with that? <laughs> All right. Well, we are here uh, in, to talk about paranormal stuff each week, and you know we try to keep an eye on things that are going on, and Matt Moniz just actually informed us of something that we hadn't even heard about yet, myself and Matt Costa, and that's the UFO over Moscow. So uh, we're definitely going to discuss that later on in the second hour of the program because that's some pretty intriguing footage. Yeah. Uh, whenever you find out something about that, Matt, like call me or email me or something so I can okay, I well, can right. have a little heads up and we can definitely play on the show to talk about it. Because, you know, with all of our connections in, Ru- in Russia, we could have found a guest. Duh. Yeah, I don't know anybody in Russia. All okay. right. Well, uh, joining us on the line right now is Thomas D'Agostino. He's a paranormal investigator and author. Uh, books such as Haunted Massachusetts, Haunted Rhode Island, and now the new one, A Guide to Haunted New England, Tales from Mount Washington to the, and the new, to the Newport Cliffs. And he's here to join us to talk about that and all things paranormal. Good evening, Tom. How are you tonight? Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you doing? Oh, we're spooktacular. How are you? Great, great. How was your holiday? Uh, it was pretty busy, but a lot of fun. Were you uh, visited by three spirits in the night? <laughs> well, we had spirits here, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always have them, though. They don't just come at Christmas. <laughs> that's true. But it's not, you know, it's nice when uh, you have a few extra guests sitting around the dinner table while you're enjoying the holiday meal. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, we set up, we set plates for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, they don't eat much, though. No, I end up eating it all. <laughs> well, the scary part is sometimes they serve themselves, which I've personally seen there. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well. Uh, I mean, just tell us about that, about, you know, what it's like to be doing this work and uh, to, to go out and investigate haunted locations and to sit around writing about them, and then, you know, you never know when 
one of these spirits is actually reading over your shoulder, judging your work. It actually is quite fascinating. I mean, Arlene and I, that's my wife Arlene, we're, we're a team. We, we love to go out and investigate, and um, of course we love being with all the other people like Matt and Ron Kolick and people like that who are like really professional, and of course we always learn something from them. And then uh, traveling around and seeing these places and, and, you know, firsthand and being able to investigate them, whether something happens or not, they're just part of legend and folklore. And, of course, we come home and we write them down, and uh, as you know, our house is haunted, so we always have, I guess, somebody here to make sure everything's going well. <laughs> it's like living in a laboratory. You know, you can conduct research uh, 24 hours a day. It is kind of funny here, because when we buy a new piece of equipment, we can just test it out right here. <laughs> <laughs> I know, everybody else is like, oh, I, I got a new EMF detector. I can't wait to take it out in the field. And it's like, well, you don't have to do that. Christmas, as soon as you open up the, the new piece of equipment, you can just put it right to use. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yourself and Arlene, you formed an organization called the Paranormal United Research Society. And what I like about this organization is it's exactly like the way I've seen yourself and Matt work uh, over the last four years, and that's you work as a unit but with different groups and different investigators, and you're not tied down to having the same you know, organization that goes out every, to every investigation. Yes, exactly, and, and that really works well because... Uh, we can basically, if somebody's way out in Western Mass, you know, you can call people up there or way up in New Hampshire or Vermont, you can call people there. Or we can all just go up there ourselves. But you also have uh, professionals who are just, you know, intel intelligent and credible in their own right, so you don't have to worry about anything. We all just get together and we know exactly what to do. And the website is nepurs.info if anybody wants to check that out. And when you do have uh, a case that draws your interest in, is there a way that you go about selecting who you want to contact to bring along? Because I know when we do certain things, you know, we, we look at the location and the reports of what's going on, and we say, okay, well, let's call Tom, let's call Andy, you know, let's call Mike Markowitz. Is that what you take into account, or is it more just who's available at the time? Uh, we just put names in a hat and draw them, you know. <laughs> sometimes it's our next-door neighbor, sometimes a cat. <laughs> No, we, we really do tailor that. Like if some, we just kind of really know who we're going to call and um, give them first shot. Uh, and then, you know, if it's something small, like just local around here, we'll go, we'll, we'll take it and all. Like we will call Matt because he's always game to adventure. <laughs> or uh, guys like Ron Kolick and, and Jeff and Andy. And uh, then if they can't make it, you know, they can't. But if they can, well, that's great. Yeah, I like that approach, though, because so many of these groups that are out there that have, you know, their their stock membership and their four or five members, and you know, you know, they you got to start worrying about scheduling, and you got to be able to to bring your whole group on an investigation, and somebody's feelings will be hurt if you decide to do it when they have to work, and it's. I mean, people don't realize uh, when they call somebody for an investigation. I think they think these groups are doing this twenty four hours a day, and that's what they're doing with their lives. And a lot of times you'll get a phone call for an immediate request for help. And it just drives me crazy when paranormal groups are like, oh, we definitely want to do it, but we can't get there until three weeks from now. And they're afraid to call somebody else because they don't want to give up the case. Right, yeah. There's no politics here. That's the cool thing. A lot of times I've gotten uh, calls like that, and they needed help right away, and we couldn't help. So we would definitely call someone else and pass on and say, you guys want to go? And just let me know what happened, and if you need me later type thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
<laughs> it's not all about getting your name in the newspaper and, you know, maybe getting picked up for a reality show. It's about helping people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're trying to ease these people. They, they have a genuine fear, a genuine, you know, problem that they feel is happening, and they want they want someone to go in and help them, and, and that's exactly what we're trying to do is trying to solve pieces of the puzzle and get answers at the same time. Well, let's take a look now at, at some of the books you've written. Haunted Rhode Island, Haunted New Hampshire, Haunted Massachusetts, Pirate Ghosts and Phantom Ships, Abandoned Villages and Ghost Towns of New England, and now the new one, A Guide to Haunted New England, Tales from Mount Washington to the Newport Cliffs. Is there any haunted location in the New England region that you haven't found yet? Um, well, there's <laughs> some we haven't been to, and, and I'm sure there's tons to be found still. I mean, things pop up every day, and... We, I mean, we we really tried to. We've been to about seventy percent of everything we've written in, in at least seventy percent. And wow, there's just so much out there. And every day we get calls. You, you know, this place, that place, and a lot of them are private homes, of course. But we we write about the places people can visit because we want them to experience the same thing. You know, we were seeing and and, and experiencing at the time. One thing I like about your books, Tom, is you also include the directions to these public places. Well, yeah, that's true, yeah. That, and that takes a lot of hassle out because, as you know, we have that, that really, really modern GPS system called a map. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Rand McNally, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's probably the better way to go because I, I know so many people that actually program their GPSs to find these, these spots and they end up going into a completely different location and knocking on the door and saying, hey, can I come check out your ghosts? All right, here's a copyrighted idea. Let's make a uh, an app for I, for an iPhone, haunted apps. Hey, there you go. You know, all, all these locations and, you know, make it GPS, how to get to them and stuff. Well, look at Lizzie Borden's house. Their, their GPS address is different than their actual address. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So it's uh yeah it's definitely an idea worth looking into. I have no idea how to make an iPhone app or else I would do it. I know Mac also was looking into it, so maybe we'll put him on that. I was. It's uh, but don't use the iToilet. It's already <laughs> copyrighted. <laughs> so with with the new book now is uh is it is it following the similar vein of your other works? Is it a a breakdown of all these different locations and kind of some of the reports that have been there and and how to get to them as we've seen in the past with your work? Somewhat. What he actually did is I took. Um, towns and locations like the Quabbin area or the Berkshires, mm-hmm. and we broke it down to legends and places you could visit, as well as places that may not be haunted that might be very interesting to um, go to. Like in Burlington, we use uh, there's a place where they actually take you on Lake Champlain, and you can look with sonar and cameras at shipwrecks. Of course, it's not haunted, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's still a cool idea. And so those are included in the book, so it's things like if you, you know, you, you want to go see ghosts, but then you want to go to Clock's Trading Post or something like that. Well, I still talk about those places, too, so you can still go other places and take a break. And, of course, it includes all the places to stay that are haunted and restaurants to eat at that are haunted while you're in these particular towns, Portsmouth and whatnot. And it gets a little more in-depth for the places and history of the uh, area. Is Is there... When you're out finding these locations and you're out investigating these places, is there ever a, a, an instance where there's a place that you don't find anything in your personal investigations, but the stories that you've heard are enough that you want to make sure you include it in a book? Or do you want to kind of 
does it have to be really convincing for you to include it in one of your works? Actually, a lot of the places we'll visit and we will do the investigations, we won't find anything, but the thing is we, we try to find uh, these places that have had incidents where people tell the stories, like, okay, this person said in 1920-something happened, and then in 1950, and in 1970, and that type of thing. So you get these people who may never knew each other, and their accounts and documents are written. And uh, so that's, you know, that's enough to say, wow, if there's, you know, four or five people in the course of 80 years write this whole thing about this place, then that's cool. And some places aren't, well, weren't necessarily haunted, but they're of such great New England folklore and legend that they just couldn't be passed up. Mm-hmm. Is is uh, is there some place that you haven't had a chance to investigate through in New England that you want to check out for yourself that's on your list and you just can't seem to get to it? Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, what the Wayside Inn, Longfellow's Wayside Inn <laughs> in Sudbury, mm-hmm. and that's one. And um, uh, we did want to go to Shard Villa in Vermont. We haven't gotten a chance to get there yet. And is this just a matter of timing, or is it... You know, they're they're right in time, yeah. It takes some time. We've been, we've been uh, invited to go to the Yankee Peddler in Connecticut, uh, in western Connecticut, we just haven't had time to go there. And it's just a matter of getting the time to, like you said, we don't do this, you know, just 24-7. <laughs> if we did, boy, we'd be very lucky to be able to do it 24-7. <laughs> Have you ever been stonewalled in a place that you want to get into? Like, um, people well, just... Yeah, they, they just won't allow you to investigate? Uh, yeah, that's happened a few times. I've even gotten the place of, who told you that? This place isn't haunted. Get out of here. And the next thing <laughs> you know, you see the Dobermans with the teeth behind them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's... Uh, that's when I usually say, okay, thank you, and have a nice day. Yeah, and get your running shoes on because of... <laughs> or, or else you're soon going to be the ghost haunting that place. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the the holy grails of, of this area, of course, is Lizzie Borden House, but there's a number of other places that are starting to become known to uh, national investigators and international investigators, and I really think that New England, for all the history that it has... It was never really appreciated for its haunts. We kind of talked about them and we knew about them, but it wasn't as glamorized as it is in, say, other places around the country. Uh, but it seems like now we're finally getting the respect. Obviously, I think your works have helped uh, bring about that recognition, but do you, do you feel that New England's kind of been the uh, the redheaded stepchild of haunted places for a while? Yeah, yeah because uh, first of all, New England is the oldest continuous settlement in the country, and... People overlook it. I mean, you have California and, and big states, and, of course, New England has a, a conglomerate of very small states. So when people were looking at it, they were looking at, oh, Connecticut, oh, Rhode Island, oh, Massachusetts. Now it's New England. It's gained its place as a whole region. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was overlooked a lot, but since all these, I mean, people have been writing about it and these legends and whatnot, yeah, they're very interesting and they're incredible and they're very old and there's a lot of history here. It, but I think that when more investigators from, you know, maybe these TV shows, because that seems to be where, where people get the bulk of their, their paranormal information from the general public, I mean, uh, when they start focusing on more of these locations, then I think it'll increase in reputation because there's so many places that we hear about and we hear from our friends and other investigators in the area that would make, you know, a perfect magazine article, a perfect episode of a TV show, and they just don't get that kind of recognition. I think probably because, you know, uh, 
it's seen, New England scene is kind of a remote, out of the way place for some of these production teams that might be out of Hollywood. But uh, maybe when we get that studio coming in Plymouth and there's more filmmaking done in Massachusetts, we'll see New England get its fair shake. Yeah, actually, that's starting to change. I think um, there are a few shows that are starting to uh, be produced in Connecticut, mm-hmm. just in which is not far over the border of New York City, of course. But um, things like that. I mean, people like Samuel Adams Drake and Hawthorne and... Uh, my God, uh, Celia Thaxter have been writing about ghosts in New England since the 1800s. And, you know, yeah, it's just something that people are just picking up on now, which is wonderful because uh, people always ask me if I'm going to, are you going to go write about New York or Canada or outside New England? I said, I don't even know if we're going to ever find, you know, everything in New England. <laughs> There's so much here. Well, you mentioned how people have been writing about these ghosts for hundreds of years in this area, and it's not just a matter of all these great books that were published years and years ago and, and are being published now, but newspapers were covering these ghosts. And I recently, well, within the last few years, I wrote a piece for our local paper here, the Standard Times, about the Charles Morgan. And that's one of the things that you discuss in the new book, A Guide to Haunt in New England, is the Charles Morgan ship, which is familiar to this area, to our listeners, because it was originally a whaling vessel out of New Bedford. Right, yes, exactly. And and talk about the spirit that's supposedly attached to that ship. Right, they've seen, um, or supposedly, they have seen spirits of the sailors who sometimes spent five years at a time on that ship uh, in the rope room, hanging about the ropes, smoking pipes. They smell the actual, you know, smoking of the pipes and whatnot. And uh, they've heard noises in the, uh, as they call it, us landlubbers call it the forecastle, but my friend who is in the uh, Coast Guard calls it the forecastle. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, They've actually heard noises as if people were in there chatting and talking, and you walk in there and there's nobody in there. And it's a decent-sized ship, but it's not that big where you could pass by that and someone could walk by you and you wouldn't see them. Well, the when the story first broke about the, the ghost and... And there was a few, I know there was at least one team that investigated. I don't know if there's, there's probably been a few more since, but... Uh, the story, the crux of the story from from the Standard Times perspective is, you know, give us back our ghost. We, <laughs> I guess, New Bedford's been trying for years to get the Morgan to return here, and they feel like whoever this person was, he was probably a New Bedfordite originally, and that he's our spirit, or you know, whatever spirits are there are our spirits. Well, you're right. It was built in New Bedford. Do you think that? Uh, Though, when, when spirits attach themselves to something like that, I mean, we say give us back our ghost is a catchy headline, but obviously they're there for a reason. They're, they're on that ship for a reason. Exactly. And, and um, I know the, uh, it was, it's basically, if, you, if you're on the ship like that, it could be a residual haunt, too, you know? You never know. Because uh, I can't imagine somebody absolutely loved being on a ship like that for five years. <laughs> Well, that's that was the uh, discussion I had with the group, uh, and I, I don't want to. I'm not totally sure, but I think it was a, a, a Rhode Island group. I'm yeah, not, it was. Uh, and uh, the the Triper group was that who it was? Yes. Yeah. And when I talked to them, uh, they you know they said that it seemed to have had, at least the spirit they were interacting with had an intelligence to it. It was actually following them and acknowledging them. Uh, but 
that you know that might be an extreme case. I'm sure there's so many cases with these old ships, and having written about you know haunted ships in the past, there's probably so many instances where it is residual haunts that you can go onto one of these boats, and when the mood is right and the atmosphere is right, it's it comes alive like it did when it was still out as a seafaring vessel. Yeah, Arlene and I were fortunate enough to do two investigations on the Charles Morgan. We didn't catch anything though, but um, it was a really cool. Well, it, right now it's in dry dock. They're repairing it. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to, it was supposed to be done within this year, right? It looks like it's going to go a little bit longer. Right, yeah. I think it's another year and a half. But, I mean, hey, Jethro and Zachariah Hillman built a great ship back in the 1840s. <laughs> well, I love when I, when I talk to people that aren't from this area or from New England, and they're amazed at how long that the Mayflower has lasted. And I'm like, well, you know, considering it's only about 50 years old, <laughs> it's not that impressive. But, <laughs> but the Morgan is it's still in its an original boat that was built over 100 years ago. Uh, 1840 to 1841. <laughs> Came out of New Bedford. And, and again, people, the, the Mayflower, built <laughs> in the 1950s. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have its spirit attachments, too. No, I, I mean, people always ask me this one this one wild question. They always say, how come ghosts have to be old? I'm like, no, we have hauntings. In our house, the hauntings go anywhere between four years to maybe 1960. And um, I've seen them, you know, people. Uh, there's one in Mystic, actually, right across from the Charles Morgan. There's a general store. And they had an occurrence in there of uh, a mother with two children walked in the store. And you, it's a very small store, very, very, very small. It's one of those you know, novelty-type things. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge door when it opens and it creaks. You can't, you can't miss it. I mean, you know someone's coming in. And uh, the guy, Dane, working there, he didn't hear the door creak. He turns around and he sees these three people in there. They were dressed in modern clothing. And he turns around and puts the box down to help them, and they're gone. Yeah. See? And the door never opened and closed. And the store is only like a couple of aisles long. And not everything has to be... 300-year-old ghost, but oh, it's... It, no, I think Christopher Balzano put it well when he said that's what they immediately attach it to because that's the oldest legend in folklore. But that being said, we still do have plenty of those 300-year-old ghosts around here. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> and that's, I think, something that uh, we have, we're very unique in New England, and we've, we've talked in the past about King Philip's War, and we've had you out in the field for us for our Bridgewater Triangle shows, and it's it's... So rare. I mean, you talk about the Civil War ghosts and the the attention that they get, but it's it's so rare to have these colonial situations hit the mainstream that we don't hear about them in our history books. We don't hear about King Philip's War. We don't read about it, and it's something that it's only that we find out later as we kind of peel back the layers of history. And I think as we do that more and more, we're going to find more haunts attached at the same time. Yeah, that sounds very uh, reasonable and very yeah. Basically, we start shunning the Puritan past. <laughs> I mean, that must be something that you encounter quite a bit, though. I mean, we joke about it, but there still is a very big Puritan ethic in the New England area. The Puritans and the Quakers were the, basically the only two. I mean, uh, even if you look at the Catholics, they didn't come here till the 1860s. And by then, you know, we the the Puritan stronghold was so great anyway that uh, I'm sure a lot of the Catholics that came adopted some of those views. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you had the Congregationalists, basically, uh, the Puritans and the Quakers, and in some cases, you, the, you know, the Puritans actually tortured the Quakers <laughs> and drove them out. So, I mean, yeah. 
that's what that's basically how Rhode Island was was more or less formed through mm-hmm. that. Is there the possibility though that uh, we can become more enlightened through our spirits? That uh, maybe as we realize that this stuff is is real, and and people come to the realization that they are interacting with the paranormal all the time, that maybe we'll become less pure and maybe a little more spiritualist. That is a that's a really great question. I. I'm still <laughs> trying to figure that one out myself. I just, what Arlene and I have been doing is, you know how everyone brings all these wild equipment out on, on uh, these, you know, investigations? Mm-hmm. And you're talking about being more, in, in, you know, in spiritual. We've been, uh, a few places, we've been just bringing a tape recorder or a regular recorder and a camera, and instead of letting the EMF meters and everything try to detect, see if we can feel it ourselves. <laughs> Moniz has been doing that too. Past past couple of uh, months, I've been doing the same thing, Tom. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> Going back old school. Yeah, well, Elliot O'Donnell did it. I mean, Hen- you know, Harry James um, Holter. Yeah, yeah, Harry Price, Houdini. What did they have? They didn't have these EMF meters. No, they were lucky. They had a flashlight. They had a torch. <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean, there's there's the good and the bad in that though, because now you're you're having personal experiences. But is it does it become harder to convince others of of what it is that you're experiencing, or are you, are you at the point now where you're not about convincing others and you're just about further research for yourself? Um, well, that's why we carry the recorder and the camera because if you're feeling this and you get a chance to take the pictures and something comes out, then wow, you know, you you have a double corroboration. You have the esoterical and the physical, and if if you just feel something, who knows? I mean, everybody can feel something. We're all electrical. We're all energy. You know, we all have auras, and if your aura matches the other, I know it's it's like saying, "Oh, my EMF meter went off." Honest is the same thing as saying, "My the hair on my arm stood up." Honest, you know. Well, that's the other problem too. Is I think that there's a, a lot of backlash uh, from the general public and and even those within the paranormal community that. Investigators have become too reliant on the equipment, and that they're not, you know, putting enough of the personal connection involved. And it's all about the science. It's all about what readings you're getting and what data you're recording. And that we've been doing, and I say we, but the paranormal community has been using that scientific approach, even beyond ghost hunters. They've been doing it for 25 plus years now, where they've been utilizing this equipment to verify things, and that still hasn't been enough to convince the skeptics. So maybe it is kind of time to go circular and go back to the idea of if you're not going to believe the data that we're showing you, then just come along and feel it for yourself. Exactly, because we can all feel it. I mean, we're all, you know, like I said, we're all energy, and, and energy is energy. I mean, you can feel heat, you can feel cold, mm-hmm. you know, you, and, and that kind of thing. So You can feel yourself getting tossed down a flight of stairs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the case may so, be. Next time you go to a gathering... Take a tape recorder and record what you're going to tell people, and instead of um, talking to them, turn the recorder on <laughs> and see what they do. That's like that's what you expect to do with spirits if you're trying to communicate with them. You put all these gadgets out. Yeah, see how comfortable they feel. Yeah, and then, and then what, what's that? Instead, of Arlene always gets results because she talks wonderfully to them and friendly and everything, and they kind of like her. <laughs> and sometimes they, you know, they pick her up and stuff, but <laughs> but that's what happens, and that's what we got into this, because, well, you know, she's 
talks nice and gently and like Matt actually taught us that too a lot of stuff on how to tell and talk nice and, and ask nice questions and really communicate as if you were being friendly with them as if you were in the room and they're in the room and you're at a gathering and you want to have a conversation with them I like when uh, when Moniz and I go into the good cop bad cop routine <laughs> we're trying to do an EVP session because I'm a, I'm of the different approach and a lot of the time I mean I can be I can adapt to whatever the situation might be but I'm I'm confrontational uh a lot of the times because while he might be soothing them into responding I try to get them into action I try to call them into action and it when how does it feel to be tossed around and slapped hey, around and well, it's, it's the price we pay for the approach we take. I've heard a few stories. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched it happen to him. It's just like, see, this is why I don't do this. But it's, um, I mean, I guess if you're if you're conducting an investigation, or you're trying to get a response. That I mean, I I think maybe I'm taking you know because we're countering each other's approach. That maybe mm. we're doing more harm than good with that approach. But then I think, you know, if it is an investigation, and you're trying to get something to happen, then you know, if that works for the police, then it's going to work for us. Yeah, well, you're, you're just going through both approaches. You're you're covering all bases. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, like like I said, in paranormal investigation is like fishing, and you have to have a really big tackle box. That's and true. Never be afraid to experiment to see what works. And it's, it, it's still no guarantee you're going to catch anything, too. Right. Was was there ever an approach that you used for for any part of investigating that you just eventually had to abandon? Um, let's see. Um, no, no, not really. It just, you just tailor them, that's all, because there's so many, no investigation, which I found, even though you may have the same scenario ten times in a row, they're never alike. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much abandoning as you have to tailor the ideas of what you're doing, uh, you know, here and there. But, there, I mean, there are things that you learn, as you learn more, you learn to hone better. So I wouldn't say so much abandoning because you never know it's going to work. I mean, we've never gone in banging on walls and screaming at them and saying, show yourself or I'm going to kill you or something, you know, <laughs> stupid things like I've seen people do as far as uh, inexperienced people, you know, like going into um, one place we went into these people, they, were, they claimed they were professionals. And they were banging on the walls as a child ghost saying, show yourself or you're grounded right now. <laughs> Wow. Now, if you were a child ghost, I mean, even if you were a live child, you'd be running. <laughs> yeah. yeah it would be saying, show yourself, you know, um, I'm going to take your doll or something, and, and whacking on walls and saying, no, you're going to be grounded, show yourself and stuff. <laughs> so I'm sure, I, I I'm just sure hope you know how to draw the line. <laughs> I hope they don't have kids themselves, because <laughs> those kids are going to have some issues. If, yeah. if that's how they treat the ghost kids, imagine how, how hard they are on the ones they can see. But... Well, we were like, okay, we got to get out of here with these people. <laughs> i got to get away from them quick. One of the things that I've kind of taken uh, a step back from, and I, I don't really do anymore, is taking photographs, uh, mainly because whenever you go on an investigation, there's always somebody there that has a camera, but also because I, I've just found that I get um, nothing that's really convincing and nothing that's really uh, documentable. And so I just say, okay, I'm going to try to use my video camera or I'm going to try to use my tape. I'm going to put my resources into another outlet where I've gotten a lot of results from. Uh, but that can also be something that you're limiting yourself to that way. Right. I, well, no, yes, and no, because um, I don't really take pictures. I do a lot of the EVP stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and Arlene is in charge of the pictures. And then she also uses dowsing rods to see if, you know, it, with, with great um, results. And... Uh, 
the dowsing rods, you know, they should, they'll, they'll kind of show if there's energy uh, roaming amok. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some in my box. I don't always bring them out, but I, I say to whoever's with us, they're there if you want to use them. Yeah, I, I can't use them. I'm, a, I'm one of those shaky Italian guys. That's, <laughs> that happens to me. As soon as I put them in my hands, I start turning into Muhammad Ali. You know? Yeah, I just can't do them, but she's perfect at them. And I do the EVPs and the other things, and she does photography, because, again, I can't take pictures very well either. Well, it's good. I get a lot of haunted thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> good then to be married to a photographer. <laughs> All right. Well, Tom, thank you for joining us tonight. The new book, A Guide to Haunted New England, Tales from Mount Washington to the Newport Cliffs. That's available from History Press. And I saw it on Amazon, and I'm sure you can get it pretty much anywhere books, books are sold around here. Yeah, Borders, uh, Barnes & Noble, and any other small gifts in uh, bookstores around New England. And you have some uh, upcoming appearances that uh, you want to promote? Actually, uh, we've taken the break to finish another book, but uh, we are doing a, in Connecticut here in Putnam, Connecticut. We'll be doing a mediumship circle on January 10th at the Cosmic Cat. Oh. And it's a mediumship paranormal circle. What they have is they have a medium who will be with a circle of people, and as they try and you know, conjure up whoever and whatever, we'll be actually uh, there to see if anything appears. So it's applying the modern technique to the uh, spiritualist approach. Yeah. That's very interesting because uh, while, while you might be looking for the, the spiritual activity that you can document with your equipment, I'm always looking for the foot shaking the table and, you know, the knees banging on the table. And I, I guess I'm way too skeptical about that. Yeah, well, there will be no table. Everyone will be in a circle and uh, we'll be looking for things to actually appear and stuff. They're going to start choking up cheesecloth? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Joe Citro turned me on to a really cool thing. They used to sell those tables with mechanisms in them. Oh. Back in the um, early 20th century. He's been looking for one. I was going to say, now I know what to look for on eBay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Not that I want to use it, but just it's good to have in the museum, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I told him if I find one, I'll let him know. Yeah. Well, I can tell you this much. If, if there's going to be any around, they're, they're going to be in New England because we have that haunted history here. And it's a great one. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom. And, and uh, we hope all the best to you and Arlene in 2010. And we'll look forward to the new book. Well, thank you. And it was a pleasure and an honor to be talking to you guys again. All right. We'll talk to you soon. And hopefully we can get out and investigate with you soon as well. Oh, yeah. We'll be, we're ready. As soon as New Year's is over, we're done. <laughs> we're all ready right. to go. All right. Take care. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Tom D'Agostino. And you know his other books, Haunted Rhode Island, Haunted New Hampshire, Haunted Massachusetts, Pirate Ghosts, Abandoned Villages and Ghost Towns of New England, and now the new one, A Guide to Haunted New England. Check out his website, nepurs.info. We'll link it up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. We're going to take a break for the news now. When we come back, we'll talk weak and weird, and we've got some very interesting stories coming up. One about the Simpsons and the Vatican, something about a hand, uh, a new saint possibly in Australia, and... Uh, Matt Moniz gets the, the weird story of the week, I think. And, but you never know what Costa's going to pull out either. So, And we'll talk about the uh, Bigfoot call in San Antonio as well as that Moscow UFO. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more after the news here on Spooky South Coast. I know who you are. Spooky South Coast. That's a good show, man. You know what? I got a theory about your show. You guys got no idea what's going on. Well, excuse me for having enormous flaws that I don't work on. Spooky South Coast is back. The key to the whole thing is to think as a child. 
And for me, that comes very easy. I can smell your fears. I'm not afraid. You will Sorry, Monies. I didn't, didn't mean to cut you off there, but we were running out of music. That's <laughs> all right. And besides, save it for the audience, man. All right. I guess we weren't running out of theme song. My fault. Uh, <laughs> it's go. okay. All right. Well, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Monies and the silent assassin Matt Costa. And uh, we were discussing off the air the, the UFO sighting uh, over Moscow this week, well, two weeks ago. Yeah, well, the 18th, yeah. Yeah, and, and so uh, we will definitely discuss that because uh, Matt Moniz has done a lot of research into this already, and he's noticed a lot of similarities between this and other UFO sightings. So we're going to get to that a little bit later on in this hour. Uh, just did get some news uh, before the show started. Pretty excited about this. Next week we're going to have our next Balzano breakdown. Cool. Our friend Chris Balzano, who I know is listening right now, he's going to be giving us the Balzano breakdown on predictions and the prediction business. This is the time of year when people come on to shows such as this, uh, different psychics, mediums, foreseers, however you want to put it, and they make their annual predictions of what's going to happen in that year, and sometimes they pan out, sometimes they don't. So we're going to have Chris kind of just break down the idea of forecasting the future. And uh, it'll be really interesting because I think we're also going to try and get some of our friends to come on and offer up some predictions for the new year as well. Uh, but as as we enter 2010, you know, it's it's going to be year five for this program. Our anniversary is coming up at the end of January, and uh, that's pretty exciting. I think that we've done, you know, four solid years here of good programs, and hopefully you've learned some stuff along the way and you've been entertained and we thank our ever-growing audience for joining us each week and sticking with us through schedule changes and bump arounds and, you know, failed podcast recordings and whatever other things go on. My, my favorite is when we're uh, scraping up the money every month to cover the podcasting fees. <laughs> That's <laughs> with uh, our, our generous uh, friends at HipCast who are who are gracious enough to give us a day or two. <laughs> with, well, because you know we try to run it out of our own. You know, spooky South Coast bank account, which is uh, always empty. <laughs> so, if you want to make a donation, <laughs> you can send the checks to uh, Matt Costa's house, and uh, he'll he'll make sure that they get into the just account. Just buy some stuff at the uh, Amazon store. Absolutely, our 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 spooky store on SpookySouthCoast dot com has books from all of our past authors and and, and past guests, and uh, cool video stuff, and uh, ghost hunting equipment, yeah. all kinds of things. Buy and, a Kindle, please. Yeah, buy a, please buy a Kindle. That'll pay for a couple months worth of podcasting. And uh we we I mean we we never come out here and actually beg for money. 
But uh, boy, do we need it. And <laughs> we actually do have some spooky South Coast T-shirts that Matt Moniz finally got back. So we're going to put some of those up for sale, and we'll use profits generated from those to hopefully buy a new batch. And we're working with some friends at a new company that might help us get some product out there. And you'll have spooky gear in 2010, I promise you that. Mainly because without the free spooky South Coast clothes that we get, we, we don't have a wardrobe. <laughs> Seriously, I've been wearing the same shirt for three days now. (laughs) All right, well, if that's not weird enough for you, we got something that might be a little weirder. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. The Week in Weird. Alright, our first story comes from the Associated Press. To put it as the devout Ned Flanders would, the Vatican's newspaper thinks the Simpsons are an oakley dokely bunch. L'Osservatore uh, Romano on Tuesday congratulated the show on its 20th anniversary, praising its philosophical leanings as well as its stinging and often irreverent take on religion. Without Homer Simpson and the other yellow-skinned characters, quote, many today wouldn't know how to laugh, said the article entitled Aristotle's Virtues and Homer's Donut. The paper credited The Simpsons, the longest-running American animated program, with opening up cartoons to an adult audience. The show is based on, quote, realistic and intelligent writing, it said, though it added there was some reason to criticize its excessively crude language, the violence of certain episodes, or some extreme choices by the scriptwriters. Religion, from the snore-evoking sermons of the Reverend Lovejoy to Homer's face-to-face talks with God, appear so frequently on the show that it could be possible to come up with a Simpsonian theology, the paper said. Homer's religious confusion and ignorance are, quote, a mirror of the indifference and the need of that modern man feels toward faith. It commented on several religion-themed episodes, including one in which Homer calls for divine intervention by crying, I'm not normally a religious man, but if you're up there, save me, Superman! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Homer finds in God his last refuge, even though he sometimes gets his name sensationally wrong, the paper said. But these are just minor mistakes. After all, the two know each other well. And who could also forget the other classic uttering of Homer? Save me, Jeebus. <laughs> so, there you go. So if the Vatican approves of The Simpsons, then maybe my mom should finally let me watch it. <laughs> I still remember when she's like, I'm not watching The Simpsons. Get that crap off. Yeah. Put it on Cosby. That's right. I'm going so far back to when The Simpsons were on Thursday nights. All right, Matt Costa, what do you have for us? All right, from the uh, Chicago Sun-Times. A Chicago man could be unwrapping the hundreds of Christmas gifts spread around his apartment for days, even weeks. Trouble is, they aren't really presents. They're his own belongings, meticulously wrapped by friends as a prank while he was out of town. Louis Saunders' packages contain everything from couch cushions to the beer in his refrigerator. His friend Adal Raif masterminded the scheme after Saunders gave him a spare key. It took 16 people, 35 rolls of wrapping paper, and 8 hours to finish the job. Saunders tells the Chicago Sun's time that he's only been able to unwrap about 10% of his packages. He jokes on the upside is, each package he unwraps, he finds something that he needs. <laughs> so. Something he might have forgot he even had. Well, though, what is that? What's yeah. the lesson learned from that? 
Um, don't give anybody a key. You got it. <laughs> Hide it under the mat. <laughs> Speaking of mats, Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? Something from clickondetroit.com. Warren, Michigan. Diners at a Metro Detroit restaurant got more than a full plate Sunday when a man walked in with a five-inch knife in his chest. Warren police said the 52-year-old man called 911 at about 10 p.m. saying that he had been attacked in Warren but had just walked a mile to uh, Brazy's Hamburgers in Hazel Park. The restaurant employee, George Morita, said that the man walked in, ordered coffee, and (laughs) said he was going to wait for an ambulance to come. Ballsy guy. It's like out of a movie, Morita said. It's kind of, it kind of freaked us all out here. Then the customers realized that he had been stabbed and that they were all turning their heads in disgust. Police said the man told them that he'd been walking north on uh, Warner Ave near uh, Eight Mile Road. Hmm. I wonder if it's... Never mind. When another man approached him and demanded cash, the man told police that... When he refused to hand over any cash, he was attacked and stabbed, knife being shoved into the left side of his chest all the way up to the black handle. Police said the man tried to get help at a nearby apartment complex, but when he tried, uh, there wasn't anybody there. He finally found a payphone and called uh, 911, and he had to walk down uh, Nine Nine Mile Road, is what it says. Uh, it's possible that um, if they were able to send an ambulance, the man heard saying to the to the nine one nine one one operator, "There's a knife stuck in my chest." The man goes on to tell the operator that he thinks it's a steak knife. Uh, Marita said that he can't believe how calm the man was and that he never complained of being in pain. To come in with something stuck in your chest and order a cup of coffee and sit down. Uh, as well as to mingle with the guy next to you, he said, is incredible. The man was treated, and police said he is expected to be fine. The police also said that the man described his attacker as someone who was tall, wearing a hooded sweatshirt, and had a goatee. All right. Where was Slim Shady during this event? <laughs> he says, I don't know if it's his coffee or not, but I got terrible heartburn. <laughs> I don't know. I know one restaurant where uh, a knife in the chest wouldn't stop the regulars from coming in. Believe me, because if it would, I'd stick a knife in their chest. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I got one more quick story here from news.com.au, which is Australia, for those of you who don't know. Mike Tannis died three years ago, but a mysterious oil that weeps from the walls of his bedroom has been hailed by his parents, George and Lena, as having helped heal dozens of people, the Daily Telegraph reports. The oil started to appear in the Guildford home just just weeks after the 17-year-old died in a car accident in September of 2006. Mike is a messenger between us and God. He has healed so many people, Mrs. Tannis said. Extensive, Extensive scientific testing of the oil has failed to identify exactly what it is, but that has not stopped hundreds from praying at the home. Last year, a woman who lived near the house was told by doctors she could not have the third child she so desperately wanted. She came here and prayed, and one month later, she came with a box of chocolates and said, Guess what? I'm pregnant, Mike Aunt Susan Salon said. 
and the oil has continued to weep, now appearing on almost every wall of the three-bedroom house, as well as on framed photos of Mike and other religious icons. As word of the alleged healing powers inside the house have spread, people have traveled from overseas and interstate. Each day, the door to the Tannis' miracle house are open, but the family does not take donations, instead just seeing people's reaction to what they see inside. To skeptics and non-believers, the family's response is simple. Come and see for yourself. So, uh, this Mike Tannis, since he died, this oil has leaked from his walls, is healing people, and now... His parents are actually pushing for him to possibly be canonized and become Australia's first male saint. So, uh, there you go. It's interesting. I mean, being a scientist, can you think of anything that might be pouring out of these walls? Well, if it's he- wood. Healing powers are not, but what would this oil possibly be? I, I, without knowing what the walls are made of, say the walls are wood. could be a form of sap that... The humidity is now increased in this area for unknown reasons, and sap, latent sap that's still in the wood is starting to ooze out. That That's one possibility. It's a, a, to have it start in his room and then kind of move its way through the rest of the house, that's what I find to be very interesting. Could um, be insect-related. It very yeah. well could be, yeah. It, and, but the miraculous power, I mean, that's still a lot of that could be power of suggestion as well. Could be. Um, well, uh, look at honey. Honey has a lot of healing properties in, in the body. It's naturally sterile, and it's been used to heal a lot of things throughout time. I'm, I'm saying if it's an animal secretion, don't necessarily knock it. Yeah. No, I mean, if it, and if it's working for people, yeah, let it work for them. That's what I say. All right. Well, we'll be back in just a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast. We'll talk about that Bigfoot call. We'll play that Bigfoot 911 call for you, and we'll discuss that. And then later on, we'll discuss the Moscow UFO sighting. Feel free to jump into the conversation at any point. 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420 to call toll-free. Or you can email us, crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Scientists have proven that the Sasquatch is real. Take a look at the plastic cast of his foot, now you know he's real. Listen real close to the audio tape, not human, now you know he's real. Couldn't be a man in gorilla suit, no way, now you know he's real. Real, 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 real. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast, Sasquatch. Yes, true, Bigfoot. Uh, There was a report this week, uh, KENS5 in San Antonio, Texas, uh, reported it, but uh, apparently there was a 911 call that was made by a homeless couple uh, who reported a Bigfoot sighting. And uh, it, it has. It was actually back uh, on November 30th that the call was actually placed, but the story hit this week. So uh, we're actually going to play for you the entire 911 call and and take a listen and see what these people described and, and see if you believe it for yourself, and then we'll discuss afterwards. San Antonio 911, do you need police, fire, or EMS? I'm not real sure, ma'am. Um, I just watched the biggest crit- it, it, it was a critter, but it... It smelled real bad. I'm a homeless female. I live right in the middle of the woods. 
around 151 to the north of Claybron. 1604 was the lightest. Uh-huh. This big thing was 75 feet away from me, smells awful, devoured a whole deer carcass, and then took off and, like, screamed, screeched, and took off across the street. And I know you guys are going to think I'm crazy, but I'm dead serious. There was something very big, bigger, a lot bigger than me, <laughs> out here. So, it's probably somebody should know. I really okay. don't know what you can do about it. Um, how long ago did this happen? This is, uh, I won't, like, immediately, like, I just, yeah. I don't know, animal control, I mean, it's... Okay, huge. again, now tell me, where was it, this is at 151 and Calibra? Okay, yeah, like, you know, the light at 151, just up from Calabria on 16, like on 1604, where 1604 split, and you can get off on the access road to Calabria, or you can take 151. Right. That light right there is, yes, right in there. It is a very large, hairy animal of some kind. Now, was it standing on two or four? Or? Well, if I told you it was standing on two legs, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm serious it ran off at breaking limbs and trees. And it kind of screeched, howled, and it's a very creepy, scary thing, because, like I said, I, I live in a tent, um, in the woods, so you I never... You live in a tent? Yes, ma'am. I'm a homeless female. I live in a tent in the woods, and I just saw this freaky, scary, very large creature devour a deer and run off across the road. So, uh, okay. I don't know. Is there any way that we can have an officer contact you? Uh, yeah, I guess it's this number. Um, but I'd really prefer, like, animal control or somebody bigger than me. But, I appreciate it. I just thought somebody should know that there's a very large animal in the vicinity. Now, the deer was walking around and... No, the deer was dead. And it got devoured. It was a carcass. Okay, and do you see signs of of, of a dead deer, blood, whatever? Um, actually, ma'am, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go check it out right at the moment. Is okay. that okay? <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I'm waiting for daylight. I got. I don't own anything but a machete and a hatchet, so I'm kind of creeped out. I just thought, like I said, I thought somebody should know there's a very large something big enough to eat as deer and as a Are predator. Are you with someone there? Uh, yes, ma'am. Did they see it too? Yes, ma'am. That's, How about if I have an officer contact you guys out there? Um, I'm not going to leave my camp right at the moment. I mean, I if they want to come look at the light, she wants an officer to meet us. Um, yeah. Well, so, <laughs> we're not leaving where we're at, is what we're trying to say. Oh, I'm a little bit scared, and it's raining, and um, I just want somebody to maybe check it out in the okay. morning when it's not dark. Well, boom. Oh, what I, I can do right now is I can have an officer patrol that area. Which direction did it, it run? Was, it was it ran across um, the, the light 
at 151, mm-hmm. like towards the water tower on two feet, like yes. my husband mm-hmm. said. Something very weird. I just wanted to make a documentation and have animal control. Had you ever oh, seen or heard anything like this before? No, ma'am. No, I've lived no, in the woods yeah, for a while. I've lived in the woods for six years. I'm going to tell you right now, I've lived in the woods for six years. I swear to God, I've never seen nothing like this. This um, was bigger than me. And it, it had a very odd smell. I'm, like, I'm, I'm six three. I'm six three. It's bigger than me. So, uh, yeah. He, it's bigger than six foot three. Yeah. It's very large. I, I, I carried the carcass off. Yeah. What, so, did he, what did he say? He carried the carcass off. I mean, oh, he carried like, it with okay. nothing. Like, just, like, I want to believe that it was a large cat or bear, but bullshit, I'm, bullshit. I'm thinking, Other I'm not going to tell you what I think it is. Cause what does he think it is? What do you think it is? Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know. I would be a liar if I said I thought I knew what it was, but I don't know. But I know it picked up that deer and walked with two um, feet. Yeah. It's a very large something that smells bad and is bigger than we are. So. Okay. So you saw it walk in which direction? Or walk in which direction? Uh, towards the light at 151 and 1604. It went towards the water tower. went towards the water tower area. And it screeched, howled, uh, yelled. Yeah. <laughs> when it, it went, yeah, when it, it worked up. I mean, my, my husband's a very large, nothing's ever scared him, ever. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we both saw it, so. What's good? No, no type of clothing or? No, no, it was for, okay. Or, as, as far as I can tell, I mean, it's a pretty light night out because um, of the overcast. Uh-huh. And uh, we doused our it. fire. And I have, a like, a, a blanket thing hung up as it a tapestry. And it, I, it saw it over the top of that. And when it ran, it cracked branches. Please. Yes. Large. I, like the size of a grizzly bear. Imagine that. But on steroids with two feet. So. Yeah, you two feet, mama. I, I know. I just know what. Okay. And did you, oh, and what is your name? Jennifer. Jennifer. Yeah, it's raining now and we can't hear nothing outside. It's kind of scary. Okay. All right. We'll have an officer yeah. patrol that area and see what we can find. I, mean, I know. I mean, you guys might be able to find some an animal control, might be able to find tracks or something in the morning. It's hard to find tracks on this area because it's area right not. Uh, right she said she's going to send a patrol around the area. So, right. And, yes, yeah, she can call. Send you the light. And get, get the light. And get the light. And sound your siren. He'll come out of the woods. <coughs> and talk to you. And you guys, you guys have your tent set up at 151 in Calabria? Um, I mean, not exactly, but yeah, I mean, it's in the area. Just go to the light and sound the siren, and we would hear you where we're at. 
Alright, so there you have it. The actual 911 call that was placed uh, on November 30th. And uh, as you heard the woman saying, I know you guys are going to think I'm crazy, but I'm dead serious. The thing was 75 feet away from me, smelled awful, devoured a whole deer carcass, and then took off and screamed, screeched, and took off across the street. Her husband claims that he's 6'3", and it was bigger than he was. Uh, police reports indicate that dispatchers sent an officer by the location that night, but he found no sign of the couple or the beast. The callers had said they were living in a tent in the woods there. Uh, that area has acres of wooded terrain surrounding it. So, Matt Moniz, your thoughts on that call and, and what they were reporting having seen? It's not the first time I've heard of a uh, Bigfoot-type creature walking off with a uh, dead carcass. I mean, a deer carcass. Yes, that's, it's, that's the most you gotta, common. You've got to be pretty big to carry a deer carcass. Yeah, I do a lot of deer hunting with friends, and it usually takes two or three of us to take a uh, a good-sized deer out of the woods. I mean, your thoughts, though, on, on the idea of the people who are placing the call, a homeless couple living in a tent in the woods, you know, really, what would they have to gain from making a false report about a Bigfoot sighting? It would get them, you know, a night in jail, which is, I'm pretty sure, something not... Not in their uh, agenda. Well, it seemed like they were really protective of their spot, and they didn't want to be found where they were necessarily. Uh, See, now this, to me, makes sense. They're they're scared because they're living out in the woods. And this thing could be coming to their tent. Right. They're, They're looking for protection, but they're also, you know, if I report this, you know, I could lose my home and I got to move on and what have you. But Yeah, it sounds like they were being... Very concerned with the idea that they might be found. It doesn't seem like somebody that would want to make up a story right. would want to go through the trouble of covering themselves. I mean, unless they were causing a hoax and they didn't want them to to find out who they were. But it, it seemed like genuine fear in their voices. Their story stayed consistent throughout. They didn't change what they saw. They didn't add embellishments uh, upon the dispatcher's questioning. I was really impressed with the dispatcher because normally I would expect they would hang up on a call like this or... Or they wouldn't keep them on for that much and ask the kind of pertinent questions that she did. Well, if the dispatcher is going to send a a unit out there, they mm-hmm. want to get as much information as possible so the officer is armed with as much information that they can possibly have. I'm just surprised she didn't say, all right, well, great, thanks, have a good night. Yeah. Homeless couple in the woods, yeah, no. But uh, there you go. That's uh, it's very interesting, and we're we're going to pay attention to that story, and see if there are any other sightings that happen in that area. San Antonio, Texas. When I mentioned the Bigfoot sighting there, you seemed a little surprised by the mention of it. Is that because it's a hotbed of Bigfoot sightings, or is it a rarity? No, Texas actually has quite a quite a large number of Bigfoot sightings. I'm just saying, San Antonio. I'm thinking like you know, city, city. But they're talking about on the outskirts, which makes mm. sense. Well, uh, one thing that you can be sure of, that they won't find the Bigfoot in the basement of the Alamo. Yeah. <laughs> There's no basement in the Alamo. <laughs> All right, why don't we take uh, a, a break? Do we need to take a break? Do we have a break to take? Uh, it's up to you. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will talk about that Moscow UFO, Moscow UFO sighting uh, that Matt Moniz was talking about earlier. And we'll also take your calls, 508 996 Emails spooky crew at spookysouthcoast.com. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
from the studios of AM 1420 WBSL into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Oh, hey. Happy birthday, Jason Hawes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's technically tomorrow. Yeah, it's tomorrow, but it just popped up uh, on my phone. But happy early birthday, Jason Hawes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, well, I didn't even realize that that was going to happen. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, along for the ride. And we were discussing the Texas Bigfoot sighting, and now we're going to move on to the Moscow UFO sighting, which Matt Moniz told us about earlier. And Matt, why don't you describe what the sighting was and, and how it came to your attention? Um, well, it was sent to me uh, shortly after, I guess it made its news headlines out in Europe, uh, my Old mentor Maurice, uh, mm-hmm. always on the, since he's retired now, he has nothing more to do other than surf the net and various other things and collect whatever he can and paranormal nature and forward them on to me. And, uh, just after this event happened, he sent me the links to, uh, the stuff over in Europe and I've been tracking a little bit of it. It started earlier in the, uh, just before sundown and, uh, hung out for a couple hours over, uh, over Red Square, basically. And um, planes were sent to orbit it and check it out and hung out for a couple hours and then just gone. It kind of stayed stationary in one spot, but, but it did move, it rotate moved, that spot. rotated. I mean, there there's some daytime footage and some evening footage, and it, uh, I'm trying to get some more information. I have friends over in Europe that uh, I'm trying to have them look to their local news sources. I mean, especially when you're dealing with UFOs. Finding UFO information here in this country is extremely difficult because the media, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't want to carry this. Whereas yeah, there's in, a bias toward it. Yeah, an extreme bias. And whereas in other European or other nations have uh, less of a a stigma attached to it. Mm. They'll just report it. They generally don't make one reference one way or another. They'll just put out the information seen here this time, this person. But by the, this was know. covered in the New York Post, too. Yeah. I mean, something this large and, you know, uh, this duration. And it's when you get several of the other news agencies, they, they don't want to be, you know, left behind. They'll treat it with, you know, minimal uh, information so, as possible, but yeah. So these were military planes that went up there to yes. check it out. Yes. So we're not going to hear back from what they saw. Uh, well, we'll get some information back. You're not going to get, you know, like, like radar tapes or anything mm-hmm. from, you know, any of the MIGs obviously orbiting this thing. But then again, Russia's always been pretty good about putting out whatever they find. So unlike the United States, but some of the stuff they, they they'll sit on, but the, they're not denying this happened. While this triangle shape is hovering above the city, uh, in the daytime footage, there doesn't appear to be any lights attached, but you said that in the nighttime footage, there is kind of like a single beacon of light that comes out of it? I mean, no, not, that, that's another case. That's what I was talking about. Usually when I, usually when I find out a case like of one type, I go looking for the history of it. Has this type of pattern been repeated before and something similar happened in brazil and uh was 1997 i believe um a pilot 
was able to orbit around uh, this big pyramid-shaped type UFO, and it was uh, recorded by that particular pilot in Brazil. Now we got a similar shaped object. I'm not saying it's the exact same, but it's a similar shaped object hanging out. And well, the strange thing though that it it's almost to the day. Yeah. Uh, you know, 1997, 2009, but it's almost yeah. the exact same day. Is it possible that there's some sort of atmospheric condition that would cause this? I mean, it looks like a pretty solid three-dimensional yeah, object. Yeah, if you look at the video, you can see that it's obviously very, very physical, very solid. Um, one of the other things I think it could be is some sort of, like, military test. Uh, best way to describe it, in, uh, in the video, you can even see the jets passing behind it. In, in some cases from the uh, nighttime video. Uh, so it gives you an idea yeah, of how low scale. it was in well, the atmosphere. Well, not, not only that, I mean, you can see the buildings from people. You know, there's dozens of uh, these photos and, uh, you know, cell phone camera videos mm-hmm. now making it to YouTube about this event because they're coming out of, out of that area. But uh, it, it's solid. I mean, it is pyramid-shaped. And now what I find interesting is so are certain weather balloons in uh, high-altitude balloons, but this thing is stationary, which makes me either think if it is some sort of balloon like that, it's tethered, mm-hmm. like anchored to the ground in some manner, and the military is using it for whatever reason uh, in Russia and not telling anybody, or you're looking at, and you can see searchlights looking at it, I th- I th- or, some, or something about it, one of the things I was reading uh, being shown up on it, um, it's it. It's pretty big. I mean, if you yeah, it looks it, extremely large. Yeah, it's not small. And if it was a weather balloon, I mean, is it? Would it be mylar, or is there some other materials that they construct them with? Uh, generally, mylar. Yeah, is one. So it would one. be a little bit more reflective than it seems to be with those searchlights hitting it. Right, but this is a little bit duller. I mean, uh, the. It, it. I mean, we're playing it over here in the uh, computer on in the studio, and you can see that it is definitely an opaque object. You cannot see through it, so it's not, um, like, made out of thin plastic, you know, like some and some are. If it was a weather balloon or, or something to that effect, I mean, somebody would come out and say that. Not necessarily. If, it, if it's a weather balloon, yeah, for obvious reasons, and how many times have we heard that excuse? Mm-hmm. But it could be, like I said, some sort of military application having to do with either radio or radar or some some other thing that they're testing. So obviously they wouldn't say... But if you were going to test something like that, would you stick it right over Moscow where it's a, a heavily populated city with lots of people who are going to ask questions about it, or would you do it somewhere else? You would tend to think they would do it somewhere else, but you don't know what the purpose of it, if it's some sort of test that they wanted to test it at the city for whatever reason. Was it doing, mm-hmm. you know... Yeah. It's just it's interesting that there was another sighting and it's so close to the same date. Um if it is half a world away. Yes. And if it is a visitation of some sort, you know, why are they targeting that particular time period? Well, like I said, I was doing research and I found that similar types of objects have been seen around the world roughly yeah, in in, well, in the latter parts of the year. We're looking at what, December eighteenth for this video. For this sighting. Right. December 20th, 1997, Brazil. There was also what happened in Israel in the 19, I want to say 78. uh, So we're talking 
at the the winter solstice. Yeah, winter solstice. This seems to regularly happen somewhere around the world. Hmm. I, I just, it's really interesting when you when you. That's what I'm saying. I, I when I get when you track like, them as you do, and you start putting all that data together. Right. It, it becomes even more intriguing because. No, I mean, even if it is something that's easily explained, you want to know why all these factors seem to line up. Right. Uh, I mean, how much? What are the chances that we're going to get a complete answer out of this? Given the nature of the country it's coming from, yeah, you'll. I don't think you'll get the complete answer, but you'll get far more than if it was to say happen here in the United States. I could just imagine if it did happen here in the United States, you know. Uh, three days before Christmas, four days before, a week before Christmas, you know, to have this happen, how many people would, if, if that many people were able to document it in Moscow, how would it be here where everybody has a video phone, video phone or a, a camera phone? And- everybody keeps making the assumption that Russia is all very backwards. Moscow is a very modern city. Oh, I'm not making that assumption at all. I'm just saying that there'd be a higher concentration of people here with, Oh yeah, cell phones ready because we're more obnoxious than they are. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not making a technological decision. I'm making a, a humanitarian decision here. Okay, that, you know they're not. Uh, they're not maybe necessarily used to sticking their cameras in everybody's faces. But uh, my guess, I think it's the Russian mafia. How is that different from the Russian government? <laughs> no, I mean I'm. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, I'm sure Tom Clancy could write a book about it. It's interesting, you know, what do you think, Mr. Costa, your opinion? I mean, it's obviously a physical object. Uh, are we granting yeah. that? I don't know. It just could, uh, it could be anything. I don't know. It looks very balloon-like, though. Yeah. Well, but I mean, it it's big. It's, yeah. it's not <laughs> I mean, what's the, uh, what's the difference between uh, weather balloons and solar balloons? I, I saw, I read a couple posts about solar balloons. Okay. But I don't know the difference. It has to do with the altitudes that they'll travel to. Um, solar balloons will get up into the upper atmosphere, and they're looking to measure various uh, forms of energy and radiation coming from the sun, whereas in weather balloons are looking mm. generally for uh, temp- wind direction, temperatures, mm. humidity levels, and things like that. They're looking for stuff that controls the clouds and, you know, what what these clouds may be doing and where they may be going, whereas in solar balloons are looking for, like I said, more energy radiation coming from the sun. I'd be uh, interested to see uh, how it disappeared. Like, did it go up or down? Or Yeah, from what I've been able to read, it, Good point, it, Matt. it slowly went up and just went out of, out of focus from what people could see. Would you release a balloon like that, or would you bring it back down to Earth? Personally, I would have brought it back down to Earth if it's some sort of testing, because something that large, yeah. obviously. Well, is that is that their procedure to bring it to return it to Earth? Uh, I would uh, think so. It doesn't. It most doesn't tethered like balloons, yeah. Moment. Usually, yeah. what they do is they, you know, it, usually with tethered balloons, there's a payload that's attached to it, and you want to obviously retrieve your sure. electronics. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. If it is a, a solar balloon, I'll say this. As new Red Sox outfielder Mike Cameron once said, you know, the sun is about 500 or 600 years old. So <laughs> <laughs> we won't hold them to, well, to that. But. The funny part is, you know, because of saying, you know, solar balloon. Well, what good's a solar balloon at night? Mm. <laughs> oh, maybe it's like when they put those big giant balloons over the car dealership and they just forget to rain it in at the end of the night. If it started waving like those wacky guys with the arms, <laughs> then I'd know for sure. 
right, yes, we have no tank for sale. It's it's uh you know, well, I'm sure you can get it wholesale there. But it's uh it's interesting. We'll definitely keep following up on that. Matt Moniz, please keep following up on that story as much as you can. And uh we'll, we know to look uh, every winter Shall solstice. Shall we put links up to it? Absolutely, yeah, we can do that. And people can check it out for themselves and they can uh and, and let us know what they think and we'll start a, a discourse on the message board and people can uh chime in. And we'll be back next week. We'll be talking New Year's predictions for 2010. And we'll talk with Christopher Balzano, who's going to give us the Balzano breakdown on predictions in the prediction business. So what we'll do is we'll invite some people on to make some predictions and, and offer up their insights. Then we'll have Chris Balzano come in and call them a bunch of quacks. So, Okay. I'm, I'm not putting words into his mouth. He'll break it down however he wants to. But... uh you know, that's just one possibility. If you'd like to reach us during the week, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can also reach us on Twitter, Twitter.com slash SpookySC. Uh, my, MySpace, I mean, my Facebook page, Tim Weisberg, you can find me there too. Matt Costa refuses to use Facebook. <laughs> Matt Moniz is on there, but uh, if he adds you as a friend, he may have to take you out sometime in the future. <laughs> so uh, until next week, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that is...